You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. Malamet, and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. And today, I feel like I say this about every episode. I'm like, this is a movie I've always wanted to talk about on the podcast, but it's true. And I was just waiting for the right moment, and it feels like this is the right moment. And I'm talking today with Annalisa about Miss 45. Hi, Annalisa. Hi, Annie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk about this film with you. I'm so excited. Uh, Annalisa, we met because you are one of my patrons. And the bonus episode this month, I also met Dobes because they're one of my patrons. So the really wonderful thing about doing episodes with people I met through being patrons is they're like such little teacher's pets and they always have amazing notes. Like Dobes had 20 pages of notes about werewolves and um, we are using, I just want to say at the top, like we're using Annalisa's notes today because they're incredible and really thorough and I just had to do so much less work on this episode because of that. So that credit all goes to her. So thank you. My pleasure. So to begin, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are? And if you don't want to talk about what you do, because we're going on first names for this episode, just talk about like some of your interests and why why this movie and how you, how when did you first see it and what does it mean to you? Sure. Um, I'm Annalisa. I'm a writer both as a day job and as a creative practice. I've been a member of the Girl Scots Jallo Patreon since I think November 2021. Joined the Discord at it, at its inception and I've been having a great time ever since. And since this summer, I have been doing service for you, Annie, in the role of secretary, helping you prepare for podcast notes, screenings, social media, whatever you need, which has been lovely. So thanks again for letting me work with you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that. I mean, it's like you said, it's service. So you do that completely for free out of love for the work that I do. And, um, you know, in exchange, we get to do fun, kinky things long distance <laughs> and maybe one day in person, hopefully. hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> and I love telling people, I'm like, yeah, my secretary, I'll, I'll have her do that. And they're like, I, love that. I know, <laughs> like, your secretary, like, that's so dated. Like, you mean your assistant? I'm like, no, she's my secretary. <laughs> like, and everything, yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm like, okay, now I have to like switch modes to like non horny. Because um, <laughs> we're talking about Miss 45. So what was your experience? Like, when did you first see this? And how did you feel about it when you saw it? So I think I must have seen this maybe around 2015 or 2016. Whenever 
Shutter became a thing because that was the platform that I watched it on. And I had known about it since, at least since the 2013 Draft House re-release, in part because I was a Tumblr girly at art school. So there were like a million images of the iconic nun costume in my internet sphere. I don't really remember my first impression of the film, but I know I rewatched it a few years later after I was essentially recovering from a mental breakdown precipitated by being assaulted. So in that viewing, I found it certainly cathartic to view the film. I related to the tragic element in it. It felt both like an empowering experience. It felt like a cathartic viewing experience as well as one that got to the messiness of being a survivor, which I found really powerful. I also had developed like an obsession with Ferrara's The Driller Killer a few years prior. So I think I also just loved the way that Ms. 45 is in some ways in dialogue with The Driller Killer, especially the way that New York City is portrayed at the time and this combination of a kind of deranged artistic glamour with madness. Yeah, I can totally relate to that experience as a fellow survivor. I saw this in high school. I've seen, I saw a lot of the like formative big player grindhouse exploitation movies as a teenager because that's when I started to really get into that genre. So I saw this in high school. I had already been raped when I was 15 and the movie continues to evolve for me because at the time I had been raped by someone that I knew which is the more common experience actually for people who have been raped and over time which is something that I know we're going to talk about that you mentioned in their note in your notes about people who have survived multiple rapes at the time I didn't I had not been stranger raped and then in 2013 I was stranger raped and also working as a sex worker I experienced multiple assaults so I am a person that super relates to rape revenge movies because a lot of the time there are multiple instances of rape in the films and I can just really relate to that as somebody who has experienced that. And this is, I think, I've talked about on this podcast a little bit about being a survivor. And I think it's it's one of those things that I sort of dip back and forth in between loudly identifying with. And there's a few reasons for that, which I think we can talk about a little bit, you know, our own experiences with that. I think... You know, and I think this is a common experience for survivors is like there's the silence after the act and then there's the kind of the the typical arc of like finding your voice again and, you know, kind of talking about it to anybody who will listen as a way to like reclaim your power. And then maybe going a little bit inward again because you start to resent being identified that way. Yes. And being like fully associated with this terrible thing that happened to you. Mm -hmm. 
And also just kind of, I think, as like countercultural women, we, which I consider you and I, we (laughs) sort of like buck against the mainstream feminist narrative of survivors. Like it feels a little like yonic feminism or like a little too precious, a little too like... Mm -hmm you know, hashtag listen to women, um, a little neoliberal. And you know what I mean? And you start to like retract. I do. I I used to have a really fraught relationship with the word survivor, partly because I was still, and I mean, to this day, I'm still dealing with the repercussions of having been raped. That doesn't necessarily go away. So the word survivor to me felt kind of false in that I felt as though I had not survived. And in some ways I still hold that. In some ways I feel that I died and had to come back. And it was a nine month long process of death and rebirth and reconstruction for me. But at the same time, there's the flip side of the word survivor, which is that it acknowledges the trauma that you've been through, the terrible thing that you've been through It does acknowledge that you have been affected by it and also acknowledges one's resilience. And I think the ongoing process of dealing with the repercussions and the trauma of having an experience like that. Absolutely. I, yeah, I've had a similar feeling about the word survivor because there's also, I also feel a bit of, it's, it's always fraught. Like I am so glad that we have these movements like the Me Too movement so we can actually start addressing rape culture. And on the other hand, I really resent the implication that my trauma is something that I have to be uh, so heavily associated with or the, the I resent like the cultural zeitgeist where everything is about trauma, like every new film yeah. or ho- especially <laughs> horror is about um trauma Jamie Lee Curtis voice (laughs) and (laughs) I I find that extremely sinister and neoliberal and right as a way to put marginalized people on display to like pimp out our trauma for consumption and I really deeply resent that and that is also very much at odds with the deep need that I have to connect with other survivors Uh, and also I resent the idea of survivors as a monolith we're all very different people the only thing that unites us is this thing that happened to us and I don't get along with a lot of other survivors So (laughs) there's also that aspect of it. Absolutely. I was just this weekend, I was speaking with a friend. She was expressing her frustration with the recent, particularly post me too, or whatever you want to call it, spate of films that are heavily dependent on exploiting the, you know, the narrative device of a woman who's been traumatized. And my thought on that was that it, Most of these films to me, and I feel that I've seen maybe a limited sample, so take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, but my impression is that these films are really cynical. Anything that I 
have heard or understand about them. For example, a movie like Promising Young Woman, um, which I think might be anathema in <laughs> Girls Gets Jalo. Um, yeah, I famously hate that movie. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> These films seem to, like you're saying, posit that traumatized women are like irrevocably identifiable with the traumatic things that they've been through. And it's a trap from which they can never escape. And on the one hand, I do feel that there's a grain of truth to that when you're living in a rape culture and a misogynist society. But on the other hand, it just feels like a reification of the same. There is no escape patch suggested or offered. And there's just the spectacle of suffering, which also to a rape survivor or the survivor of any other type of violence that's dependent on a marginalized identity, that is the horror. That is the always present lurking terror that you might never recover from this, that this might be forever. So I share those resentments with you. Yeah. And it's also, you know, I, I used to feel, I and I still do feel in some ways, like you said, oh, I'm not a survivor because I didn't survive. Like I still have right. to live with it every day. And at the same time, sometimes I feel like really heavily identify with that word because I'm yeah. like, fuck yeah, bitch, I'm still here. And I could have killed right, yeah. myself and I didn't. Yeah. So yeah. I'm still living every day having to deal with this. And I am surviving because Absolutely. I'm simply continuing to live. Right, so yeah. that's it's as simple as that sometimes. And yeah, I just feel like there's so much stuff we could get into here about which I think we'll talk about when we talk about Zoe Lund's essay, like the influence of the of dirtbag left rhetoric on mm, okay, this yeah. as well. I mean, sure. I just remember like a tweet that uh, Dasha of Red Scare once fired off where she was like, oh, no. I guarantee you I will never fucking tell my story. And in reference to to you know, being a woman and being a survivor, which I'm sure she is, you know, most women are. Right. And yeah. I like hate that those women. And I also like totally got it when she said that, you sure, know, yeah. like you don't deserve to fucking hear my story. Like nobody deserves that. It's, you know, it. it's um, it's just I, I understand because I feel that similar resentment to this idea of like parading around my story as a way to like garner some kind of um, respect or like sympathy from right, people. Or credi credibility. Credibility. Like, you have to talk yeah. Enough to prove that you were raped enough to consider yourself a survivor. Um, totally. Or that you're doing a disservice to other survivors if you don't talk about it, which is also, I think, a a fallacy and really thorny territory. I think there's a lot that we can um, discuss here in relationship to Zoe Lund's essay on Ms. 45, where she talks about her own experiences with sexual violence, as well as her relationship with what she considers mainstream feminist attitudes about the correct way to go about being a survivor. And mm -hmm. I do, I mean, I do just want to say, like, first of all, I'm so glad you're still here. I'm so glad that I get to speak with you about this film. 
And I've always, you know, obviously no one is obligated to talk about their experiences, but the way that you have used your voice and support of other survivors has always been very moving to me and has been helpful to me as a fellow survivor. So I did want to say that to you. That is really, really kind. And thank you so much. I mean, that means a lot to me. It's, I feel like I try to speak for the people that feel the way we do, which is that, you know, on the, like, we feel torn between like this neoliberal mainstream feminist way of talking about being survivor versus the kind of misogynist dirtbag left attitude of like fucking get over it. Like the only real struggle is class struggle, bitch. Like I feel like we, I feel like I am sort of really outside of those two very present discourses. Yeah. Where I, yeah, I feel like caught in the middle of that a lot of the time. And I feel like I try to speak for other people that feel that way. And Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, yeah, thank you for saying that. And I also, you know, was really hesitant to do this episode for a long time because I really don't want to talk about this movie with people who aren't survivors. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. like I really don't. And I also... And also because of my belief that people deserve privacy and bodily autonomy, I'm not going to ask people if they're survivors. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, when you had mentioned that you were in my server and we were kind of talking about rape revenge movies, I was like, okay, this is the, this is the, the opportunity. So let's get into talking about Miss 45. So... Uh, Miss 45 is released in 1981. It's directed by cult filmmaker Abel Ferrara, who a lot of people know for The Driller Killer. I feel like Driller Killer and this movie are his two most famous movies. And it was also written by Nicholas St. John. So like Driller Killer, it's the similar low-budget guerrilla filmmaking that captured everyday life in gritty downtown pre-Giuliani New York City setting, which is some of my favorite favorite is like I love pre-Giuliani New York movies oh hell yeah same yeah just disgusting and like love the fleas yeah exactly (laughs) and like you said Annalisa it was re-released in 2013 by Alamo Drafthouse Film Mm -hmm. and has since enjoyed a critical reappraisal and renewed cult following it's very easy to see this movie now. Whereas when I was in high school, I think I had to buy like the VHS from some man on MySpace or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot easier to, to see this movie. So let's get into our the new thing I'm trying to do on the podcast is go scene by scene. And instead of talking about all of the production and, and at, up top, try to just weave it into our notes and I think you did a really good job of that so yeah let's let's just get into the movie so we open with very Annalisa coded uh typewriter (laughs) and (laughs) and bullet punctuating the period after Ms and we're in the Manhattan garment district in the early 80s this also uh, reminds me of my mom who worked in the Manhattan Garment District in the oh, 80s. Yeah. yeah. So my mom was one of the first uh, plus size buyers for Calvin oh, yeah. Klein. Yeah, that rules. I know. That's really cool. And it 
Uh, We open in this design showroom where models are demoing garments. And we meet Thana, who is played by Zoe Lund, who is a very beautiful woman who happens to be nonverbal. And she is showing these garments to a buyer. Um, The buyer doesn't approve of the first garment. So Thana's boss returns to the sewing room and asks for another. Also, the woman who's approving the garments is like this really beautiful, cool black woman. Oh, Uh, yeah. she's gorgeous. I know. I wish we saw her more. Yeah. And he tells Thana's coworker, Lori, to send the girls home. I'm not paying any overtime. And the buyer decides on the second garment. So let's stop here to talk a little bit about. So Thana works in the garment district. And your note here is there's this, we immediately get set up to think about fashion and feminine performance. Yeah. So one thing that is obviously very iconic about this film is the nun outfit at the climax and Thana's character development is very much portrayed by the evolution of her style throughout this film. One of the more notable things about this film, I think, is that style, partly because Sana is nonverbal and we have a limited view into her interiority, Sana's style as it evolves throughout the film is a really important marker of her interior journey, for lack of a better word, and her her evolution, her descent, her entire character arc. Also, Sana's workplace as a site of exploitation plays a really large role into the development of Sana as this vigilante or angel of vengeance, as one of the alternative titles for the film was. Heller Nicholas, Alexandra Heller Nicholas, and her monograph on the film also points out that Sana is working in the heart of the mass production of women's clothing. So as she is being exploited by this industry, she is nevertheless playing a role in it. And eventually, kind of like, she eventually reappropriates this mode of exploitation for her own purposes. Absolutely. And... Yeah, clothing and femininity is huge theme in this and mass production. And I honestly think of this movie as a precursor to something like Base Moi, where the revenge is predicated just as much on class struggle mm-hmm. as it is on misogyny, which is like one of those things that promising a film like Promising Young Woman gets so wrong. Uh, And and it's like so neoliberal, the idea of extracting the identity of woman away from classism, probably Mm -hmm. because it's made by like what it like a blood diamond heir. What is Emerald Fennel like? I made it my business not to know too much about that. So it's and we're at that the end of that movie. The police are the heroes. Mm. You know, it's very. Yeah, it's very it's very different than this, mm-hmm. uh, or films like Miss Forty Five or Base Moi. You also have a note here that everyone in the demo room is wearing purple, as though they are royalty. Again, some more yeah. class struggle there. Absolutely. 
And Heller Nicholas also points out that dichotomy between the two women, the silent model on display versus the silently judging buyer versus silent Thana. Thana's name also, right, comes from Thanatos, which is destruction. Yes. So, yeah, her... There's even, during one of the final scenes, there's like a cheeky aside in reference to it. So, yeah, that's very deliberate. Yeah, absolutely. So... And then there's also this idea of clothing as uh, self-expression, but the self-expression is fraught because, like you said, in this society where you're buying clothes that have partly been made for you, Mm -hmm. it's this idea of, like, false individuality. Absolutely. And I think, too, throughout the entire film, we see multiple scenes of Thena being pressed in upon or feeling as though she is being surveilled or actively being surveilled as we'll talk about when we get into her landlady. And I think the mass production of clothing and this illusion of choice is one of those elements of the film that illustrates that, that sense of inescapability. So Thana and her coworkers leave and her boss is saying goodbye to each of them using these frequent terms of endearment. He literally pats Thana on the head patronizingly, like she's like a little mute animal. And yeah, this is something that you put in your notes that I was also thinking about on my rewatch is how Albert is so effeminate. Mm -hmm. And there's this trope of this, the effeminate male villain who stands in contrast to a traditionally masculine love interest. And Albert fulfills this figure, but there's literally no male counterpoint because Thana has no romantic interest. Mm -hmm. So there's zero positive representations of men. Uh, And the queer coding of Albert emphasizes that lack. I really like how you put that uh, and ends up troubling that dichotomy. Mm -hmm. So he's this like queer coded boss, but is uh, sexually predatory towards Thana. I don't know. What do we Mm -hmm. like? What do we make of his character? I do think there's like a non-zero element of misogyny or homophobia within this character i think there are a few instances having to do with um in albert's case sexuality and gender performance and then in later instances with race where the film uses men who are considered non-normative from like the white masculine hetero ideal as threatening um i think it's you know one of the elements of the film that's more regressive and of course, the role that Thana's boss plays throughout the entire film is a major indicator and driver of her loathing for men. And of course, it's also important that this man is her employer. He's exploiting her labor. He later starts to exploit her disability in the form of sexually harassing her with all of the implicit threats behind that well actually i did have a note here that i was like how did she get this job with no ada accommodations right yeah yeah um i know lund herself had created a backstory for the character because there was none in the actual script she decided that thana was someone who had attempted to get into modeling and when that didn't work out fell into garment production Mm. work so i don't know if that answers the question but i did totally i mean it's kind of a a rhetorical question question. it's just like such um 
it's one of those things where I'm like, oh my God, this, these the people around her barely attempt to even communicate with her. I feel like part of right. why she has this access is because she's like so conventionally beautiful. Uh, and it's like appealing yeah. that this like conventionally beautiful woman can't speak. So Right. She's almost treated like a pet or a novelty. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Thana, uh, the actress who plays Thana, Zoe Tamerlis Lund? Sure. Absolutely. So Thana is played by Zoe Tamerlis Lund, who was Zoe Tamerlis at the time. Her married name was Zoe Lund. I put Zoe Tamerlis Lund in my notes because that's how Alexandra Heller Nicholas denotes it. She was. 17 at the time and in these first scenes it really shows she looks very young she's meek she's almost mousy she's wearing very um modest kind of androgynous clothing a black blazer over a white shirt which of course is sort of the business casual version of the iconic nun outfit that she wears later at the time she was an accomplished composer she was attending columbia on a music scholarship she was a radical leftist from a young age. When she was approached by a casting director for Times Square, she basically tried out for that part on a lark, didn't get the role, but was sent Ferrara's way to audition for Thana, and he immediately cast her in that role. They had a working relationship, of course, for this film. And then several years later, um, Lund also wrote the script for Bad Lieutenant, which I think was made in 1992. At the time, Lund herself was also a rape survivor. She writes that she was raped by a professor in college. After school, she worked as an assistant to a filmmaker and critic named Edward de la Roe. And up until her death in 1999, she wrote several essays and screenplays, including the aforementioned Bad Lieutenant. She also appeared in Larry Cohen's Film special effects, which we watched. you screened. Yeah. Was that for <laughs> it was for Snuff Month? It? it was um a surprise screening, I think, or like a bone. I oh, yeah. oh no, that was when we were still like using that weird Russian chat site. I think I just <laughs> I think I just like put it on as a I was like whatever we're watching this, and then I just decided to make it a Patreon benefit that you get surprise screenings. That was hell yeah! I had a great time that's watching a good that, movie. I, I like that movie, yeah. and I don't think anyone had. Yeah, that was fun. Lund's performance is pretty much critically acclaimed across the board for this film. She utters one word the entire time, so the entire performance is dependent upon her facial expressions, her physicality. She's in the film for most of the screen time, and Ferreira said unequivocally that Zoe Tamerlis Lund's performance is one of the major reasons, if not the major reason, that Ms. 45 has endured as a cult classic over the past 40 years. Yeah, and she, Ferrara said that, she, you know, she talked about feminism all the time, and she embodied the film's feminism because of her radical politics, but Lund herself demonstrated discomfort with the term feminism. And she wrote this essay about the movie called The Ship with Black Sails and 50 Cannons, and I was wondering if you could sort of give like a, a little summary of that essay, because I think it's going to be really important for the rest of the episode. Sure. So I do think it's a little bit of a complex essay to talk about because in many ways it's so poetic and metaphorical. 
the title of the essay is taken from the lyrics to Pirate Jenny, which is a song from the Three Penny Opera by Kurt Vile, lyrics by uh, Bertolt Brecht. It's a it's one of my favorite songs. It's about a young woman who is working in a seaside hotel and eventually is rescued from her situation by a pirate ship that comes in and she is given the authority to execute all of the patrons and bosses. Hell yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I listen to when I get real pissed off. Uh, and Nina Simone does probably the most famous version of that song. It's incredibly haunting and powerful. So this is the jumping off point for Lund's analysis of Ms. 45, which she, on the one hand, didn't write, but was also instrumental to the making of. She is in this essay pretty passionately arguing against the idea that Ms. 45 is about women's oppression. She makes it very explicit that her view of the oppression being depicted in Ms. 45 is purely class-based. And she literally says the phrase, your boss rapes you. Your boss is the rapist, the ultimate exploiter. Um, she goes on to talk about her rejection with she goes she goes on to talk about rejecting the idea of victimhood she and i think this essay was written in the early 90s she claims that at the time the feminist movement the mainstream feminist movement is putting the label of victimhood on women essentially out of cowardice and as a means to keep women unliberated and lund completely rejects this conceit and expresses a deep frustration with what she feels to be women's complicitness in their own subjugation. She also takes, she takes the position basically that in order for women to become liberated, they must be violent, that this kind of violence can be an expression of what she calls a moral rigor. Um, she also talks a little bit about her own experience with being raped and her sense of her own agency over what that experience meant. So that's like the surface level summary. And I'm sure that there's a lot that we can get into. Yeah, right thank now. you for summarizing that. That's I mean, and this also like plays into what we're talking about at the top of the show about our own kind of fraught feelings as um leftists and survivors mm -hmm. I like hate the word leftist now but <laughs> for all intents and purposes yeah <laughs> and yeah I really felt what she was saying when I read that piece and especially this idea of the raped woman symbolically standing in for class struggle as opposed to being a literal representation which again goes back to sort of the difference between this these films and something like promising young woman um where it is what it is on what uh, on the surface and there's very little class analysis and something like miss 45 or base moi is very interested in those complexities mm -hmm. so 
Fana and her coworkers walk to the subway, enduring leers and catcalls from men flanking them on the sidewalk. Very much what it's like to actually live in New York as a woman. And one of, and also it it, uh, nods to the overarching rape culture. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there isn't just the violence of the rape. There's also the violence of the in everyday mundanities of misogyny. Absolutely. And these are all things that add to her breakdown and what will be her last straw. So one of Thana's coworkers asks her if she'd like to get drinks and she declines silently. She goes to buy groceries. She's walking past aisles of frozen meat. Very symbolic. Cutting up women as, you know, treating them like meat. That's what uh, Alexandra Heller Nicholas also says it in her analysis. Mm -hmm. In her monograph also on this book from Cultographies, she does a scene-by-scene analysis like we're doing here. Mm -hmm. So very much in debt to her uh and please read read the book if you want even more about miss 45 so meanwhile as she's at the grocery store a man breaks into her apartment as she and as she walks home she's a separate man drags her into an alleyway he's masked he's played by director abel ferreira who he also played uh, Reno in Driller Killer, and he is credited in this movie under the pseudonym Jimmy Lane that he used in his in his porno work that's loaded mm-hmm. as hell. And also in, also in Driller Killer is something. Right, right. So much like rich <laughs> richness here about the, rep- the uh, relationship between horror and porn. Yeah, yeah. So uh, she's dragged into an alleyway by masked man played by Abel Ferreira who threatens her with a gun and rapes her from behind on top of a garbage can. So this is the first rape that happens in the film. Uh, He wears a mask. You said in your notes that it's it's like almost like he's a movie monster. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you want to say a little bit more about that. Sure. So yeah, the mask that the first rapist is wearing is similar almost to the one in Alice the yes. Alice now that I'm thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, it's like a semi-transparent mask with blue eyeshadow. It's a woman, um, yeah. Red lipstick. Yeah, and um, I think it was also Heller Nicholas who notes that the character of the first rapist may or may not be Reno, who is the lead in Driller Killer oh, because... Same universe. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe happening like within the same world. The cinematic universe, you mean? Oh, no. (laughs) Shoot me in the head. I mean, okay, that. Usually, any New York cinematic universe is something I could probably get down on. So, yeah, I think it's notable that there is this blurring of gender lines with the mask because that comes back at the climax in a very significant way. In my notes here, I also. I think like you said, wrote that this is the cultural boogeyman version of a rapist, which is, of course, not to at all deny or discount the fact that stranger rape, random violent rapes do occur and they're around us. But I think that the first rape occurring this way is partly meant to set up the second rape, which enacts a different kind of violence upon Tana. This is very 
quick, sudden, out of nowhere. I think also it's playing to what an audience in 1980 may have viewed as like what a legitimate rape was. It's not ambiguous. Um, so you as an audience member are not at all put in a position to contest whether this is what actually happened. And I think that's being done deliberately so that there is no mistaking that Thana has been victimized here. Yeah, that's a really good point. And the gender fucking with the mask is also goes back to um, Carol Clover's analysis of horror films and men, mm-hmm. women, and chainsaws and the blurring of gender lines and the way that these killers who are often nonverbal, like you noted, mm-hmm. um, like Jason or Michael Myers or Leatherface, they don't speak and they're disguised or masked and often feminized uh, within the narrative. And mm-hmm. it's almost like the face is like Thana's face when she starts to um, dress more like high femme in later scenes during her revenge with like the blue eyeshadow and the red lips. Absolutely. I think in the movie, there are a lot of instances of Thana mirroring the men who have been violent to her and reappropriating the elements of what they're using or wearing. And then there's also her silence, which is a means of making her a kind of movie monster as Mm, well, I think. Absolutely. So Thana arrives home, shocked and disheveled, and to her horror, she realizes there is an intruder in her apartment. He threatens her with a forty-five, asking where her money is, but she can't respond, and it becomes clear to, to him that Athana is entirely nonverbal. This is somebody, like, back, you know, in 1981 would have been called mute, but that is now considered an offensive term, so we've been saying nonverbal. The she's like very autistic coded also in this. Yeah, 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 that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. and the intruder sees Thana's open blouse and takes it as an invitation to rape her, saying this will get you to talk because rapists always think their penis is so magical and (laughs) that you'll experience it. Yeah, you'll experience it and you'll just, you know, you'll be like, how could I have ever said no? This is so wonderful. Uh, (laughs) And Thana waits for the moment that the rapist drops the gun and she hits him in his head head with this like bright red apple, this glass apple figurine and bludges him to death with an iron. So this is her first, her first kill. And it's so justified yeah. too. <laughs> and Oh, it's sad as hell, yeah. So the second rapist, it's a bit different, right? And I remember like when I first watched this, and I believe I watched it with my mom the first time. Uh <laughs> My mom was like, oh, God, at least this one is treating her like a human being, whereas the other guy just bent her over like an animal. And, you know, I can sort of understand where she was coming from with that comment because it is deliberately set up that way. Honestly, maybe for you to even feel that reaction and to maybe question your own reaction. Um because as you say in your notes, this is in direct contrast to the first rape. 
because um, he's like um, more quote unquote tender with her. Like he's almost like trying to get in her head, trying to make it intimate, kissing her, telling her she enjoys it. Yeah, which I actually think is worse than the first rape. Um. This scene to me, I have not experienced stranger rape. I have my my experience was being raped on a date with someone I had previously had consensual sex with. So this scene personally for me reminds me more of my own experiences with someone twisting what is supposed to be an intimate interaction into one of force and invasion and violence. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I, I, I think as somebody who's experienced both, it's really it's quite something to see it represented on screen. Um, And of course they're both stranger rape. Right. But like you said, the second one is more, he's like trying to get in her head. Um, So, and because he sees that she's nonverbal, he can really, you know, take advantage of her. Nonverbal protagonists are this longstanding rape revenge film trope. Um, like in Thriller, A Cruel Picture, which Miss 45 was partly inspired by, the protagonist Frigga is rendered nonverbal after she's raped as a child. So it's also this idea that Thana may have other trauma that has rendered her n- nonverbal, which may contribute to this being like her last straw. And Helen Nicholas also points out that there is a brief dream sequence at some point in the film. I can't catch the dialogue, but Helen Nicholas suggests that the dialogue is implying that something did happen to Thana as a child, but we don't get an, any more of an extensive explanation as to whether anything has happened or a reason for whether her nonverbality is a result of trauma or not. Yeah, and you know, it also kind of points to this idea that you have in your notes again, I'm just going to keep referring to that, <laughs> um, where it seems that rape victims, if once you've been raped, you can be even more vulnerable to repeated sexual assault and, and abuse and exploitation. There's this like damaged goods idea that abused people are repeatedly exploitable. Um, and that is also something that I can speak to, though I don't have conclusive thoughts about it, but I definitely think that being raped as a young teenager kind of set me up in my life to continue being sexually exploited because it's almost like predators can just like smell that on you. Like they they know what to look for. Um of like people who are very vulnerable, even in my case of stranger rape, the reason that happened is because I was at a party and I had so much anxiety about being around <laughs> men that I, and like, you know, it was a sex party. So I, and at that time that was, I was still going to like all gender sex parties and I had so much anxiety around being around groups of men that I got really drunk as a way to deal with that and then then that's when I ended up being stranger raped by um multiple men so it all plays into itself right like 
obviously nothing I did like warrants that behavior. Right. But it's more so that I mean that because I had already had this trauma, I already wasn't um, I was hyper vigilant in a way that wasn't like productive to protecting myself. It was more like a um, freeze or dissociation response that can cause you to not be in touch with your surroundings and your feelings, which can make you more vulnerable to people taking advantage of you. Absolutely. That kind of trauma response can be triggered or repeated over and over again. And people who have malicious intentions will readily seize upon that and take advantage of it. And some people even fetishize that. As we know, yeah. So, and also, I have some stats here about disability and sexual assault. So, according to Human Rights Watch, when compared to able-bodied women, women with disabilities are three times as likely to be physically abused or assaulted. According to the University of Michigan, it's estimated that as many as 40% of women with disabilities experience sexual assault or physical violence in their lifetimes, and that more than 90% of all people with developmental disabilities will experience sexual assault. According to the Justice Department data on sex crimes, and of course, this is all stuff that's only that's reported, right? There's so much that isn't. People with intellectual disabilities, women and men, are the victims of sexual assault at rates more than seven times those for people without disabilities, which is crazy when you think about how, in general, like something like one in three women has been sexually assaulted. So then Mm -hmm. add this to it. It's like there's probably so much that we don't even know about because people with intellectual disabilities are more at a disadvantage for reporting. Like, what is Santa going to do? Go to the police and like get treated like shit because she's nonverbal. And I think this also ties back to the class analysis of the film because people with disabilities have more barriers to the accumulation of wealth. Donna is clearly a working class person. She is limited in that way and her access to credibility, to law enforcement, to legal funds if she wanted to pursue this in court. We see that even take the example of Amber Heard. That's a she's a wealthy white woman, right? And even in that instance, th- this case wasn't even necessarily about sexual assault. It was about defamation mm-hmm. in her speaking of her experience with sexual assault and domestic violence. So, oh, what am I trying to say here? Um, Just so like no one is safe. Like even if the, if this woman yeah. cannot get restitution, what hope right. do the rest of us have? Yes, yes, that's that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, each time that I have attempted to even begin to seek justice for things that have happened to me, I have been faced with a wall of limitations that have made it not worth it. Um, not just limitations, mm-hmm. but like things that could be really detrimental to my life absolutely yeah yeah like um i don't know again just in the case of like the idea of defamation there are so many things i have not said publicly because i don't want to be the one ending up in legal trouble even though i haven't done anything right wrong yeah exactly especially you know if as for me as someone who is like openly kinky and um you know talks about 
subversive, transgressive, like very frowned upon activities um, in my work. Uh, I can't risk that. I can't risk getting my entire source of living shut down because somebody is going to accuse me of defamation. So there's and then, of course, this leads into this idea of Thanos silence and the, the idea that you have to talk about it. But there's limits to what's acceptable to talk about. Like there are all these taboo responses that people have to rape, like violent fantasies or consensual non-consent or even, you know, the stigma we feel if we, we don't get over it. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think um, I hope you don't mind me recounting this exchange, but it was in the discord you were talking about the, uh, the experience of having violent fantasies mm-hmm. about your rapist and I responded yes I think about this all the time this has been something that is at once troubling and also cathartic for me um it's part of why the film I think for many survivors who watch it myself included it feels like the expression of the unsayable which is that it often feels that the only recourse towards justice or whatever you want to call it would be violence would be deadly violence and that feels really taboo to say for so many reasons partly because i think we still live in a culture where there's a dominant framework that people who have been harmed need to forgive in order for the healing process to start right which is of course <laughs> Not true. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's something I've even um, worked out for myself when I did my steps in adult children of alcoholics. Shout out to ACA. If you're thinking about joining, you should join. But it's that was something I really struggled with during uh, the step eight, the amends process. And um, something that I actually like came to the conclusion of that I found like actually very like very liberating and freeing was like, no, I don't have to forgive them. I have to forgive myself for the ways that I was so mean to myself after these things happened to me and and the blame that I placed on myself. Like forgiving them is not, that's not an option because they're not sorry. I don't think you can forgive people who aren't sorry. And it's more that I have to forgive myself for the way that I was terrible to myself and in the wake of those incidences. Yeah, I had a very similar experience in in CODA with the same step, realizing that it's it's hard to accept that there's nothing to be done, maybe in the way that you would want to do it, but there are other things that you can do. I certainly count having this discussion as one of them as a means of reclaiming agency and pleasure. Absolutely. And it's also a double-edged sword because I also know that like this conversation is going to be really hard for us and like trigger us. But, you know, so it's like you also, but rape culture is enforced by silence. So it's, it feels important to talk about that, even though it can be really hard. And 
actively upsetting to talk about it. I mean, luckily, like we, this is a very contained space. And I think that we did a lot to make sure that we felt really safe to talk about this. But yeah, it's, it's like, don't talk about it. But, but, but you have to tell your story. Um, and also, like, it, tell your story, but you have to be a perfect victim. And don't be too upset about it. Or be upset in the right way. Because if you're not that upset, like, what's wrong with you? You know, it's like you can never – it's one of those things where, yeah, of course, as a woman, you can never really win. Of course. And ironically, you know, the more detail you give, the more opportunity you give people to question mm-hmm. your account Yeah. of – what happened yeah I mean even as like somebody who is a multiple rape survivor and um feels a lot of guilt about like that and the 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 way that it will color people's perceptions of me as like some high maintenance crazy bitch or something um or that the fear that people will feel like I put myself in those situations like talking about my gang rape like even telling an odd like a, my listeners that like yeah that happened at a sex party you know I'm like well what can I expect you know like it's of course that blame that I have for myself comes back in it so yeah it's it's very um very fraught to talk about <laughs> there are a lot of other voices kind of in the etheric construction of culture in our heads as survivors speaking to us in these ways. I don't necessarily think it's oneself as an individual. um, And I think we both recognize that. And of course, that's what this film is depicting as well. Everyone is constantly speaking over Thana or using her as some kind of vessel in which to pour their thoughts or demanding responses from her which have no answers such as, are you okay? Yeah. I think what we're talking about is you know very well depicted in the film absolutely so some of the symbolism in the second rape scene too is there's this apple um that she bludgeons the rapist with of course recalling eve as a temptress it's like this clear subversion and almost like middle finger to the concept uh she then she kills him with the iron which is part of her work and it's this feminized labor Um, There's going to be more instances of domestic appliances in the film. And then she takes the gun from him, this phallic gun. There's this interplay between guns and knives in the film. Um, The the means of control, it's, it's the means by which he gains control, but also, and he loses control. Um, he drops the gun when he orgasms, which is very significant. It's almost like she was waiting for that moment because she knew that he would drop the gun at that moment. So then there's also this idea of the phallic woman as positioned by Carol Clover in Men, Women, and Chainsaws. And then, of course, also Barbara Creed's idea of the feminine castatrice. So it's, you know, they play into each other, right? Like the phallic woman... It's this idea of like the woman with the dick with a dick um, as the like this horrifying specter to men. Um, and it's also, you know, Carol Clover writing in the early 90s, I believe, didn't really have a very salient analysis of trans misogyny when she wrote this yeah. but there's a ton there um the 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 fear of the woman with a penis 
And uh, Clover also uses that idea in her very famous theory of the final girl, in which she claims that the surviving woman of so many of these slashers is quote unquote phallicized. She's masculine, masculinized so that a presumed male audience can identify with her as she rips a male killer to shreds and no longer feel threatened by her at the same time. And Creed's idea is that, and I think Creed, Creed turned it around really quick. I think she wrote Monstrous Feminine like a year after um, Men, Women, and Chainsaws came out. So Creed is actually saying that this figure of an avenging woman, and she also uses rape revenge films in this analysis, this isn't, you know, supposedly a woman who has symbolically been given masculine attributes or a dick in like the sort of limited Freudian framework that she's working with, but rather the femme castatrice, which is a mythological figure characterized by a vagina dentata, the devouring, threatening, vaginal opening that threatens to destroy, eat, consume men who are sexually attracted to her. So Creed posits that these avenging women who pick up their weapons are representative of this male fear of being destroyed by women and being destroyed specifically because they're sexually attracted Mm -hmm. to them. Yeah, great summary of those two texts. (laughs) So Thana's uh, landlady, Mrs. Nisone, is cooking breakfast and her dog Phil is running around her feet as Thana drags the rapist's body into her bathtub. She can hear the landlady outside and she wraps herself in a blanket so that she can peek out the door. Um, It's... And also a little bit about the interior of Thana's apartment. Like, it's very pretty and cozy. There's lots of floral and textiles full of sunlight. It's a great apartment. It's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where if you've lived in New York, you're like, oh, what, how much? I wonder how much that cost in 1981. Right. <laughs> and it's very much, you know, Heller Nicholas talks about. Um, this being the way that her interiority is conveyed and talks about textile craft, which could indicate Thana's work being exploited um, and also her skill as an artist and her personhood. It's like a very feminine interior space. And the landlady is also this like hyper feminine and almost hysterical stereotype of a nosy woman. Um like she has control over Thana's finances. She's got this kind of almost like care. T- caregiver situation going on um where she's her landlord but she also like controls her finances and her living situation and she has no privacy and she's coming into thana's apartment whenever she feels like it and in thana's head you know this could be a kind of her frustration with other women um and then Ferrara apparently wanted divine in this role, which would have further contributed to the gender crossing and complications. 
Can you imagine the Zoe Lund divine showdown on screen? Oh, God, I wish. <laughs> I mean, I love the actress who plays Mrs. Nasone, and we'll talk about her too. But yeah, that would have been amazing. And then there's also this like hagsploitation connection. Like this is very much kind of a kooky baby Jane <laughs> character almost. Um, totally. Like almost like a witch figure. There's a lot of um, maiden, maiden mother crone imagery too like you know thana sort of passing from the maiden to the perverted mother like the, the archaic mother that barbara creed talks about and then miss nasone being like the, the the crone at the end of the cycle yes i love that you pointed that out yes so the next day at work albert berates two of thana's co-workers and she has a flashback slash panic attack um and her co-workers like really unhelpfully <laughs> gather around her and they're like what's making wrong? it a lot worse yeah what's wrong what's wrong um and she collapses so her trauma is so immediate and no one around her is treating it properly <laughs> So Thana dismembers the rapist's body in her bathtub with kitchen knives. Again, more more domestic symbolism. Um, she wraps the parts in newspaper and places them in black plastic trash bags that she stuffs in her fridge. And she scrubs her bathtub clean. There's that really gross moment of the chunks of meat bubbles bubbling up in the drain. Um, she attempts to undress but has a flashback of her rapist in the mirror, almost like she can't get away from it even in her private moments of nudity, uh, which is very true of the survivor experience. You just feel like you're on display all the time. like Yeah, and you also feel like you want to take your fucking skin off. Yeah, absolutely. She carries body parts out in a bag and she has to avoid her landlady and fill the dog on her way out. Her landlady surprises her at the door. Thana drops the bag and Phil immediately starts barking and sniffing at the bag. And that's when Thana is like, I must kill this dog. In her <laughs> and she <laughs> disposes of the bag in a public trash can. Well, when I was watching this scene, one of the first things I noticed was how similar this is in certain ways to Darfan, which you also screened during the Obsession series. I did. I You're such a good little student. <laughs> Just more of a pervert than I was in middle school or whatever. Yeah, but in Derfan, it's also a situation where a young woman has been raped. Um, It's very different in that this woman is pursuing this older man, but she's a 15-year-old. So he basically fucks and runs and she takes her revenge by bludgeoning him with a figurine which Thana also does here and using a electric carving knife to dismember him and grinding his bones to dust and Thana does similarly here in their fun the protagonist is clearly taking almost a form of sexual pleasure in what she's doing I think this also came out the same year even though so I don't think there's any way that one filmmaker would have seen the others work so it's just and it's like a weird zeitgeist thing yeah totally um so thana clearly is not taking any pleasure in this act if anything it's physically grueling she can't even take the second rapist clothes off it's incredibly 
triggering work for her. Can we talk a little bit about, and I think we've alluded to this in previous parts of our conversation, but could we talk about her decision to stash the iron and gun and cut this man up instead of talking to the police? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's really significant because she just knows that that's not going to go anywhere. You know, as a disabled woman, you know, she's like, I can barely get my supposed friends to listen to me, let alone the police. Like, they're just going to blame me or, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a mess. So she I mean, it's a very abolitionist film, the rape revenge film, which is kind of why, again, promising young woman is horrible is I know I'm like so stuck on this, but it's. (laughs) You know, part of the beauty of the rape revenge film is the vigilante justice, because as a person who is a survivor, but also an abolitionist, I really don't care about my rapists going to jail. I I just want to kill them. I I feel like that's part of why these films are so cathartic for people is they get to live out that fantasy and... Yeah, I mean, it's just a, there's no even whisper of the police getting involved here. Absolutely. Yeah, not until the very end, which we see is the result of her landlady, again, being incredibly invasive, literally breaking into her house to gather evidence. So the police, her landlady, her boss, they're all being positioned as complicit in a system of oppression which includes one that does not allow agency or recourse for rape victims. You also mentioned the semiotics of the kitchen by Martha Rossler, which I thought was a great reference. I mean, oh, yeah, because yeah, there's, <laughs> you know, this, that's a feminist video art piece from the 70s. And um, it's just one woman, Martha Rosler, in front of the camera, like violently using kitchen tools, like in a very sort of frenzied way. And yeah, that's totally, if not a direct reference, like very apt to talk about in conjunction with this scene. And then you also talk said here um, when she's buying these, she's buying groceries and now she's stuffing the rapist body in her fridge and these black garbage bags, right? There's all, and then there's the meat in the supermarket and she was raped on top of these trash cans and now she has to use these trash bags. It's kind of this, the way that rape permeates every aspect of your daily life, but it's also recalling ideas of trash and refuse and victims feeling discarded. Absolutely, yeah. That really struck me, especially upon the more recent viewings that I did in order to prepare to talk to you about it, that from the beginning, Fana is trying to engage in her everyday domestic life and it is immediately infringed upon by rape. And from that point on both, and there's so much action that takes place just in Fana's apartment as well. It's literally littered with reminders of what has happened to her, which is, Again, so like you're saying, so reflective of the experience of having to function after something that has potentially rendered that impossible. Every domestic act or every everyday act becomes one that is fraught with distress or reminders of 
of what has happened. And yeah, like you said earlier, I think there's also an identification of Sana with these pieces of garbage, because I do think that so many people who have survived rape feel that in the moment that that was happening, they were being regarded as meat or as disposable. And after it happens, we talked about the idea of damaged goods a little while ago. You know, not only is it something that predisposes you to being predated upon once again, it's also at least something you fear that people are going to view you as is somehow less valuable um, or, or less human after you've been raped. Um, I also was thinking about this when I was reading Fried's chapter on the concept, Kristeva's concept of the abject and how someone who... <laughs> we love it. Favorite. We love the abject. <laughs> <laughs> Objection girl is yeah. here. <laughs> um, but yeah, when I was reading Fried's chapter on um, Kristeva's concept of, of the abject, she... I actually forget if she talks about this or if this just popped in my head. I don't want to take credit for her work, but um, someone who has been raped is completely thrust out of the symbolic order. So when we're getting into this depiction of Thana's domestic sphere, suddenly nothing makes sense. Everything is rearranged in her own understanding. And that is part of what leads her, I think, to becoming this vigilante. She cannot identify any longer with the society that she previously did and now feels completely outside of it. And of course, there's also a parallel there too, and a direct re reference to Taxi Driver, which came out only a few years mm -hmm. before Ms. 45 did. I think also the film makes this explicit, and this is also part of how the film links sexual violence and class-based oppression it is initially people who are living on the street, houseless people who are finding the body parts. And there's repeated scenes featuring people who are living on the street. And as I was thinking about that, I sort of came to the conclusion that now Fauna feels that she can only identify with other people who feel that they have been completely thrown mm. away by not just an economic system, but a symbolic system. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the landscape of pre Giuliani New York City is perfect for this because there's so much trash and refuse and discarding going on. And it all culminates in a very powerful narrative, which just cannot be captured in any other time and place. Absolutely, yeah. So, and Heller Nicholas also uh, talks about the actress who plays Miss Nassoni, which I felt like we should interject here, uh, Adida Sherman, who was a longtime fixture of the downtown scene. Again, like this is such a New York movie. She was a photographer mm -hmm. and activist. She was a model for Andy Warhol, and she was a fixture of the Carnegie Hall Arts Artist Studios. So, and then, you know, Abel Ferreira is himself like famously a such a new york filmmaker uh and uses the landscape of new york in uh, like every film of his that i've seen so and i haven't seen all of them but 
yeah, I'm thinking of like Driller Killer, Miss 45, The Addiction. Um, what What is that? that? Is it New Rose Hotel? Is, is that what it's called? The grittiness, the shadiness of New York is very important in his films. Mm-hmm. 